Hello and welcome to Accommodate Unplugged on Tuesday the 19th of May 2020. Mark Pender is across the Pond stateside and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Financial markets struggled last week as hopes for a V-shaped recovery were undermined by a more cautious view of how the labour market will get back to work, while the deteriorating relationship between the US and China simply added to worries about the risk of a new global trade war. Still, a rebound in oil prices, these days seen as something of a leading indicator of economic activity, provided some help, and Monday's vaccine-inspired bounce in stocks was another reminder that for now, it's still really all about how investors see the COVID-19 crisis panning out. Interestingly, volatility levels are trending down, suggesting that financial markets are becoming rather more certain about the economic outlook, be it rightly or wrongly. Nonetheless, in the US, expectations for a fast pickup in growth seem to have faded significantly in recent days, and Fed Chair Jerome Powell appeared notably more cautious about economic prospects just last week. So, Mr. Pender, what's changed? And while we're on the subject, there's uh-huh. a lot of talk about it these days. What are the chances of neg- negative interest rates, your side of the water? Apparently zero. He, um, Jerome Powell went out of his way in a, um, uh, in a, a con- it was an interview with the Peterson uh, Institute of International Economics. And it was a good, it was a good presentation. It was interesting. And uh, the questions were, were uh, sharp. And it, he th- just not considering it. They had considered this back in October. And, you know, in one of the only times ever, all 17 members of the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, that includes uh, 10 voters, but all 17 of the members uh, did not want um, negative interest rates. And of course, this contrasts with the administration where uh, uh, President Trump has voiced a strong support in the past, at least for negative, uh, for negative interest rates. And I can see that in Europe, they're also considering, uh, I see headlines popping up that they may consider that. And there are the banks that already are not uh, negative or con- may be considering that. But here it looks completely out. The reasoning uh, being uh, uh, banking I- intermediation and that's uh, credit flows and uh, hurts bank profits. And in the long run, they, they consider that to actually be hurting um, credit flow, um, borrowing and lending um, in the economy. Mm-hmm. So they are going to increase lending. And uh, Jerome Powell made a, a point of that in an interview um on uh, 60 minutes on Sunday, he's he's on he's on he's speaking right now. As a matter of fact, on um, uh, on uh, rescue uh, funds um, in Congress, but uh, uh, they're going to be increasing their lending facilities, and it's everywhere. A commercial paper he uh, he came out uh, yesterday and prepared testimony saying that um, the commercial paper has been a, a, a success and all their lending facilities here are being described as as a success. So uh, it, they don't need to go to negative interest rates. I think that's how they're going to do it. So it seems to be an absolute positive or absolute floor at the uh, zero to um, uh, 0.25 range uh, for the federal funds rate. And they're going to do everything else. They've already been on unlimited QE now for a couple of months. They also, Powell also mentioned that they're pulling back from that now because of what you had mentioned, which is the volatility in the markets trending down. Okay. The 
from this side, certainly it seems that people generally now becoming, irrespective of the fact that the stock markets, by and large, keep going up. I know last week was a bit of a tricky one. But there does seem to be this, you know, gradual downgrading now about the possibility of a V-shaped recovery, you know, be it out of Europe, be it out of Asia, or be it out of the States. From your side, what have you mm-hmm. seen that's coming, you know, has come out recently which pay, should make people a bit more cautious about what the outlook's going to be? Yeah, initial jobless claims. We're going to get that out. On Thursday, the, the weekly tallies have been going down, but they're they're still staggering. Um, the Econoday consensus uh, it changes as the uh, as forecasters uh, adjust their forecasts, but it was at 2.4 a million, and uh, that would be down um, maybe 500 thousand. Uh, or so, or, or more. I guess we rounded up to three million in the prior week. But these are still incredibly staggering numbers, and that's and it's still indicating that um, there is still a, a lot of layoffs happening. And I guess the you know the assumption is that there will be a a bounce back in the economy, and that all, you know uh, all these folks will then uh, get back on uh, on payrolls. But you know that's going to be a lengthy process, and there's going to be a, a, a reorganization, a realignment of the accommodations industry, the food service industry, and also the healthcare industry because our healthcare professionals have been suffering uh, in this uh, uh, pandemic. So there's a lot of shakeout, and I so that that to me. It's a weekly number. It was the first number to show, um, it, I think, globally uh, the it, in mid-late March what was happening, at least here in the U.S. economy, and where, um, you know, uh, a, a job evaporation it can take a place completely suddenly. Now, in Europe, is that, I mean, it, it's harder just to evaporate, you know, uh, 30 million jobs. I think, yeah, I suppose there's still a sense, certainly within Europe, rightly or wrongly, that you know, the U.S. labor market is seen as you know, operating under some kind of you know, higher and far umbrella, whereas certainly for a number of European countries, it's harder for companies to get rid of staff, even if they want to. But I think you know, there's also, I mean, looking at you know, people trying to explain why, to date anyway, and as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, the European data are very much lagging uh, behind the, their U.S. counterparts, so it makes it harder to compare one the other. But it does seem as if some of the way that perhaps fiscal policy has been operated in Europe um, may ultimately help to keep some of the numbers down compared to what you're seeing your side. And by that, I mean what we're, what we're seeing quite a lot of at the moment is you know, various fiscal policies which are aimed at really almost trying to keep employers actually in employment. So both in the likes of Germany and particularly in the UK as well at the moment, they have what well at least one calls a, a job retention scheme by which rather than allowing or encouraging or just simply well let's say allowing an employer to make a make an employee redundant because there's simply not enough business going around now the government will encourage that employer to maintain that worker by paying up to 80 percent of their wages so that in turn is helping to some extent anyway and we'll see more of it over the coming months is helping to keep down you know, the numbers well the rate of increase in unemployment whereas i think it's probably fair to say that on, on your side of the water it's more a case that you know, income's being supported once someone's actually been laid off is, is that a fair comment? Oh, yeah, yes, I think that is. And 
Um, I don't know. I, I guess it's a, tr- a tradition. Uh, maybe, I don't know if you call it laissez-faire, uh, but uh, uh, certainly there is, I think, a, you, know, a, a, there, you know, unionism here in, in the U.S. is, you know, in, incredibly small, uh, fractional. And um, how is it in Europe? How, how, what, what is the union standing there? A un- well, certainly union power has dwindled quite significantly in a number of the, sorry, sorry, the major European economies anyway. Now, it's still, I suppose, quite strong in parts of Italy. And certainly, the, well, the French welfare state, as Mr. Macron's found out, is extremely difficult to dismantle. But for other countries like the UK and Germany, I think it's, it's safe to say that the power of the union now is nothing like what it, what it once was. Uh, nonetheless, I think it's still typically the case that you know, companies are reluctant to make employees um, re- you know, redundant compared to perhaps some of the more aggressive you know, actions we see coming out of out of a corporate side um, uh, in the states. Mm-hmm. And what is uh, uh, update us on the schism? If I, I don't want to call it that, or jump to any conclusions between uh, Italy, Spain, Germany, the Netherlands yeah, right okay. now. Good question, because there's been some interesting bits and pieces coming out on that. So, and it is, it is a quite generally, just from a purely political front, it's an interesting and a testing time for Eurozone at the moment, see whether or not this political harmony can actually be maintained. As you mentioned, there has been, I mean, schism is quite a good word for it, really. Bottom line is that you've got a number of the, you know, the, the less well-developed, or at least the southern Mediterranean, the peripheral Eurozone countries, who have been hit really hard by the COVID-19 crisis, and don't have the, the structural economic power or the fiscal stability of a country like Germany or to some extent even France to be able to you know to really dig themselves out of an increasingly deep hole so there has been a lot of pressure from uh, some national governments on the EU commission to try and come out with some kind of you know big-sized European recovery fund. The problem has typically been, and it's something which may be in the process of being resolved now, is that those countries who are best off are reluctant to be seen to be effectively bailing out those who are not so well off. So we have uh, countries, say, like particularly uh, Spain and Greece um, and Portugal, who would and Italy, obviously, who would look to look to receive a significant amount of funds to help their economies, which, you know, at the end of the day, to a large part, would be paid for by the, the richer northern countries like the Germanys and the Netherlands of this world. Now, to date, the proposals for a bailout fund have been couched in the terms of, well, look, if we're going to have a fund, then the disbursement of the monies is going to be in the shape of loans. So as far as the likes of in particular Austria, the Netherlands and Germany, they've been saying the bailout will take the shape of loans, which must ultimately be repaid. For those countries who are looking to receive the funds, they've effectively been saying, well, look, no, it can't be funds. It needs to be grants. And there's been a major disagreement across the union as to what should happen here. So what we've seen as a result of yesterday, there was a meeting between um, Angela Merkel and uh, Monsieur Macron, the French president, as a result of which they come out with a joint proposal, uh, which in total would suggest, well, boil down to a European recovery fund worth 500 billion euros, under which the European Commission would raise the money funded by borrowing on the markets and which would be gradually repaid to the EU's overall budget. However, 
these would be funds provided as grants to the recipients. So this means that really Germany has backed away from its stipulation. It's got to be loans rather than grants. Whereas France, who actually wanted to see the fund you know, in one trillion plus, has had to concede that, OK, we'll only get 500 billion instead. So the bottom line, it seems to me, is that there's a, a chance now that we will see some kind of you know, fiscal package coming out of the European Commission. But the danger is it's going to be you know too small and too late and having talked this thing up you know one of the problems of course with the eu is that there isn't a kind of a, a clear fiscal coordination center and it means that this final deal whatever shape or form it might take will have to have the backing of all 27 members and the initial response coming out of austria which is very much one of the hawks within this group, they signaled immediately that they, they remain strongly opposed to direct handouts, i.e. they really want still loans, not grants. Uh, Netherlands, Sweden and Denmark have all intimated the same kind of thing as well. So it's sort of, you know, two steps forward, one step back as far as this goes. And what we see in the result of this COVID-19 crisis, uh, all these sort of fracture lines and fault lines across the European Union are gradually being opened up. And the question whether or not the you know, the governments within the union can actually you know find enough sand and everything else to try and you know, fill these cracks in before they widen to the extent that people actually start losing faith in the in the single currency altogether. Speaking about fissures opening up, how about the UK and Brexit? UK and Brexit is another one. Um, and indeed, I suppose all you have to do is look at the performance of sterling euro over the course of what the last couple of weeks or so. Um, we're now trading down at levels not seen since what say certainly late March against the euro now. And why is that? Well, one, Brexit most definitely. Um, folks remember under the way the, uh, the legislation works at the moment, the UK would have until the end of June uh, to request an extension to the current transition um, period, which expires at the end of this year if it wants to do that. Now, the problem is that the negotiations between the EU and the UK over what shape any kind of post-Brexit trade deal is going to look like, to all intents and purposes, have progressed nowhere. So there's still a big chasm there. And so markets now are starting to take the view, well, Boris Johnson is still maintaining that if there's no deal agreed by the end of June, he's not going to ask for an extension. Bottom line to that means, presumably means we're going to end forward, well, we're out of the EU now, but come next year, there won't be any kind of trade deal whatsoever. Because as we stand at the moment, although the UK is not part of the, of the, of the European Union, it's still effectively operating under the old trading relationship as if we were, and that will continue until the end of this year. So that certainly is one big potential negative for the pound, and it's weighing somewhat at the moment. And the other one is where we sort of started off the podcast, really, and that's on interest rates. For a long time, the Bank of England have maintained that it doesn't want to see negative interest rates. I think for exactly as you were talking about the Fed, it sees some of the, you know, the knock-on effects, the side effects on financial markets, crucially banks' profitability and hence their ability and willingness to loan, could be such that it more than offsets any benefits from actually reducing interest rates any further in the first place. However, it does seem now from just some of the messages coming out of the B of E that they're starting to contemplate much more you know, seriously the possibility of setting negative interest rates. Now, what um, the Bank of England uh, Governor Andrew Bailey said last week, said it was something they weren't contemplating at the present. 
which is market speak for something, well, look, we may well be contemplating it later on. Uh, and he also intimated that you know, setting negative interest rates wasn't something that could be done at short notice. It required a lot of communication just because what it involves for lenders themselves. So I think it does really does send a message, I think, to markets. Well, look, if the UK numbers don't start turning around, then there's every chance, I think, firstly, we'll see uh, quantitative easing, that the lid on that being increased again, but we're 645 billion sterling on that. That could easily go up by a couple of hundred billion or so. And then if they're still unhappy, they may actually decide to, you know, to, to bite the bullet and, and cut interest rates into negative territory, both of which you know, are going to leave the pound all that much more exposed. Mm. So difficult times. I mean, there's certainly plenty of you know, problems, I think, around the world at the moment. Will everybody blame everybody else over you know, the COVID-19 crisis, where mm. it started from, who's responsible for it, world trade, um, <laughs> what's going on at the World Health Organization, WTO, etc., etc. Difficult indeed. Um, right, what else have we got? Should mention, I suppose, a quick roundup of who's in recession now. It's always worthwhile keeping on that. We now have two of the, of the world's largest four economies actually technically in recession. Germany, whose economy shrunk not too badly, to be honest, but compared to a lot of European countries, their first quarter GDP was down 2.2% on a quarter on quarter basis. Mm-hmm. That was after they revised that number down to minus 0.1, which is only little, but nonetheless, two quarters of negative growth. So Germany officially is in a recession. They join France and Italy as far as the Eurozone is concerned. Uh, and Japan, their first quarter GDP, that was minus 0.9% on a quarter or down 3.4% um, at a season adjusted annualized rate. So they're now the largest economy so far to fall into recession as well as mentioned. So that's four of the, the largest economies in the world now officially deep in recession. Well, well, uh, um on that note, have you been brushing up on your definition of depression? Um, you know, what exactly? I haven't. But, you know, if you look back in through economic history, the word depression was freely thrown out in the past. I mean, uh, there's been, there was plenty of uh, pre-World War II depressions. And then after World War II, you don't see that word anymore. But what does it really take? I mean, is this just a little hair-splitting nuance? Um it feels like a depression right now to me. I don't know. I don't. I mean, to me, when I go back to you know, the days of black and white TV, when I was at uni and things like that, a depression, as, as I recall, was defined as being a, you know, a protracted period of, of contracting economic output and falling prices. And so falling I think, prices. And falling pr- And that's the key bit. Pri- the price level is actually going down. And that's when it becomes sort of worst case as far as central banks are concerned, because it's not just a case that inflation isn't high enough. They've mm-hmm. actually got falling prices, as we all know. Well, if prices are going down, maybe a purchaser won't buy the good they're going to buy this week because mm-hmm. next week's going to be cheaper. And so it's, you know, it snowballs. And at the end of the day, demand mm-hmm. just starts collapsing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not convinced we're quite in that world yet, but certainly, I mean, inflation rates, you know, underlying rates appear now to be coming down now. Um, and it may be if you know, we don't get a, a reasonably rapid economic recovery taking place, we end up in what you might call depression. But I'm quite sure that's a word that central bankers everywhere want to avoid, like the proverbial plague. Hmm. 
Um, okay, slightly better news then before we disappear. China, uh, we had some April numbers out of China. Obviously, people still looking at what's going on there with a view to first in, first out of this little lot. Retail sales in April, year on year, down 7.5%. That compared with a drop of 15.8% previously. April industrial industrial production was up 3.9% after a decline of 1.1%. Both much better numbers we've seen previously. So it does look as if things are starting to turn around there. Um, however, again, just going back to this idea that because output's fallen so far, it could well take a long while to get back to where we were before the COVID crisis struck. Um, the Chinese authorities are also suggesting that around about 85% of industrial companies at the moment, uh, their productivity is only running at about 50% of a normal level, which just goes to show there's a long way to go. Okay. Um, I think that is probably it. Oh, I should uh, mention, oh, sorry, uh, sorry Thursday, very, very remiss of me. So I just mentioned from the European side, um, since they are the most important numbers really at Europe monthly basis, we'll get the flash uh, mm. PMIs for May out on Thursday. Um, they're expected to just show a small a small increase in the headline composite numbers. Um, but again, as we talked about previous episodes, it's um, you know, any small increase on naught gives you a big number effectively. So the absolute levels are still going to be very low. <laughs> Right, it will be a sub fifty, which will be just contracting at a at a, a lesser degree. Yeah, ex exactly that. I think where I I think the consensus for the composite output index is still down at twenty four point naught. That will be after thirteen point six. So that'd still be its second worst ever reading. So not good. Okay, um, we done then. I think we probably are, aren't yeah, we? Yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. I suppose it's quite as quite as quite as miserable this week as it was last yeah. week. Yeah, um, yeah, no okay. <laughs> okay then that's it for today from mark and myself thanks as always for listening we'll be back next week so do join us then and in the meantime keep on top of all the key data and events in the grande's global economic calendar stay safe and we'll see you next time bye for now <laughs>